Start with me in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. I want to go back to a little bit of the, uh, more of the teaching theme. And we've been doing a little bit of apologetics. And some people like that because, and it's me, I like that. I like to get into why we believe what we believe. Because for a long, long time as a Christian, I just believed it because I was supposed to believe it. <laughs> you know, I didn't. Somebody asked me about contradictions in Scripture. I didn't know what to do with them. If somebody asked me about how the Bible was canonized, I didn't. I didn't know and things like that. And I find it interesting to dig some of that stuff out and study it. And, and that's why I've been wanting to give it to you. So when the question arises, you at least have some kind of an idea of what's going on. Because very few uh, churches deal with uh, apologetics. And, and I don't say that to be critical. I'm just saying realistically. I went to church for 30 years. I've never heard a, a, a study or a teaching or a message on the canonization of the Bible. So that's what I want to get into today. How was the Bible canonized? And by canonized, that doesn't mean it shot a big round steel ball out of a big gun. That's a different kind of canon. This is a it has one less N in it, uh, the, the canon of Scripture. What that basically means is how did we end up with the 66 books that we have? And are those God's Word, and are they all of God's Word? Because there's a lot of arguments. If you, if you are one that, that talks to people, if you talk to a Mormon, they're going to tell you the Book of Mormon should be in, in, included in this. If you talk to a Catholic, they're going to tell you the Apocrypha should be involved, in, included into the Scripture. Uh, there's a lot of them that, that think a lot of the Gnostic books ought to be involved, in, included in Scripture. And so I want to get in a little bit about how we ended up with the books that we have and whether they're the right ones. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Lord, I just pray that you'll teach us something today. Use me to bless your people and to give us something that we can chew on, Lord. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And the canon, what do we mean by the canon? Canon simply means the measuring stick or the standard of... of the Bible, the Biblia, Biblia, uh, Biblia as a, as a Greek calls it, just basically means the book. And that book we take for granted so often, and I've been trying to do a lot of this apologetics to get you to understand just how amazing this book is. And as I told you a couple of weeks ago, you ever run into somebody who wants to question your faith and say, well, you know, you can't prove that there's a God. This pretty well proves there's a God. Because no humans are capable of putting this together with 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years, most of which never met each other, bring a work together uh, where all of their books mesh, don't contradict each other, aren't overly repetitive, and bring out a, uh, the same story. It's incredible. No people have been able to do that. Our best editors, writers, and scholars in the world have not been able to do that. The Bible does that. It is pure evidence of the truth of Almighty God. And so we have the Da Vinci Code, 
who tries to, to claim that there was over 2,000 books that were being scoured to decide which ones went to the Bible or not. And they, they say that obviously out of 2,000 books, and you have 66 that ended up in Scripture, obviously there's some others that should have been in there. Maybe there's a couple that shouldn't have been. And that's what they've been trying to pawn off on people. And we have to understand that that's a fallacy, first of all. There may have been 2,000 works, but there was not 2,000 works that the early church ever even looked at. It wasn't ever even accepted. They didn't, they didn't read these from these works within the church assemblies, within the, the believers' assemblies. There was a lot of books, Gnostic books. And by Gnostic, Gnostic was a group that what we would call New Agers. New Agers want us to be convinced that they're new. They're not new. It's a very old, old idea. It's basically the mysticism and... And you know the 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 spirituality, spiritual spiritualists, such like that. They were the Gnostics of that day. There was a lot of Gnostic books, and the Jesus seminar goes around today, and they try to convince people that that we have lost a lot of Jesus's teachings, and that some of his teachings that we do accept are just not really shouldn't have been there, and so. This is a very old teaching that goes way back to the first century where they tried to claim that the early church was in a power struggle. And you had the Gnostics against the, the other side, and they were battling it out, and they argued, and, uh, and that's how we ended up, especially with the New Testament books. And that's simply not the case. The simple fact is that the early church was in very much unity, very, very much united on what books went into the Word of God. They understood that. It was a very understood, clear thing. I hope I don't put you to sleep. I know this is kind of dry, but I want to get the information out to you. The current 27 books of the New Testament, there was 20 of them that had no controversy whatsoever. There, there was never an argument. 20 of those books, nobody questioned the validity of those books. Out of the seven, uh, and it's basically the, in the Greek, the Antiglomia, which is the spoken against, where Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Second John, Third John, Jude, and Revelation, people argued about them. They weren't sure whether they should have been included into the Scripture. The fact is there was very little argument about more books uh, outside of that. There wasn't 2,000 books. Another writing says that there was 80 others that were, that were, uh, that were trying to be, that were being uh, vetted, I guess you would say, and some of them should have went in there and they didn't end up in there. The fact is that's not the case. There was very few that were looked at. These were the only real ones that there was any, and you don't really want to use the word contention, there was any question about it. And there was a reason why there was question about it. There's certain criteria that had to take place for a book to be included in the Bible. One of it was that it had to be written by an apostle. The biblical book had to be written by an apostle or somebody who was a direct uh, student or follower of an apostle. So when you look at that, you have Matthew, you have John, you have uh, Peter, you have Paul as one that was born out of season. Uh, you, you have these apostles, but then you have others that were not apostles. Luke. Uh, you know, that's one of them that was uh, James. And although elsewhere in Scripture, James is called an apostle, although he wasn't one of the original ones there. So you have an argument also about the Apocrypha. And they have an argument that says, well, the Alexandrian church accepted the Apocrypha as part of the Scriptures. But that's not exactly true. The Judas 
the, the church in Judea, the Hebrew-speaking church, never accepted the Apocrypha at all. The Hellenistic church, which was the Greek church in Alexandria, accepted the Apocrypha, but according to their own writings, it was a secondary book. It was not scriptural in their, in their sight. It was a secondary book. And so the Apocrypha also was not written by apostles. Now the Apocrypha, was, some of it was very old, some of it was intertestamental books between Malachi and um, uh, Matthew. Example of how Scripture gives itself its own canonization. Luke chapter 11, verse 50 and 51 Jesus is arguing with lawyers. What can be more fun than arguing with lawyers? Jesus is arguing with lawyers, basically. The Pharisees, Sadducees. My, talking about lawyers, we often think of lawyers in, in the legal sense in, in that. The lawyers that they were talking about, the Pharisees and such, were, were experts of Mosaic law. They knew Mosaic law. Jesus says, let me, let me just read it so I don't misquoted here. Luke 11 and chapter chapter 11 verse 50. It says that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you it shall be required of this generation from Abel to Zacharias. And people often erroneously think A to Z. Jesus is saying A to Z. Well, in the Greek, it's not A to Z. In the Hebrew, it's not A to Z. It doesn't sit that way. What Jesus was doing here was doing the same thing as what you and I would say when we say Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament of that day, the, the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament was Second Chronicles. Not what we would see as Malachi. The books were ordered in a different arrangement. And Abel, according to, to Hebrew uh, belief, was the first prophet. Zacharias, his death is outlined in Second Chronicles. What Jesus was basically saying here was every prophet, all the way from the first one to the last one, that the, their blood is going to be held on your hands. What he didn't include was the Apocrypha, which in the Hebrew writings, those that accepted it were, beyond, were past Second Chronicles. So you had the Hebrew writings ending at Second Chronicles, then you had the Apocrypha. So Jesus says, basically what we would say, Genesis to, to Revelation, he was saying, Beginning of the Old Testament, clear to the end of the Old Testament, and he did not include the Apocrypha. Now, if Jesus did not include the Apocrypha, that should tell us something. I found that interesting. You look at me like I'm an alien. <laughs> I thought it was cool. So, so he omits that. When we look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, Jesus has given a, or Paul's given a teaching in regard to finances, and he's basically saying, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta take care of those that are ministering to you. He's talking about the pastors uh, and the workers within the church that that make their living that way and such. And he's saying that you basically take care of them. And he makes a couple of statements. He said, "Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the grain." And he says, "The laborer is worthy of his reward." Well, where is the phrase? Well, now muzzle, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treaded out the grain. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. 
Where is labor is worthy of his reward? Well, that's found in the book of Luke. So in, Paul was basically acknowledging Luke as being scripture. He was basically, and to see the Bible does this, and I could do it, it would take a long time to do it, and I, I'm not going to do all that because it'll bore you to death, but the Bible does this throughout. Paul calls Peter's writings scripture. Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. Different ones uh, give credence or credibility to one another, but you never see them giving credibility to the Apocrypha or the, to, to the Gnostic books. The Gnostic books, the, the Gospel of Thomas, the, uh, the Gospel of Enoch, uh, and then you have the Apocrypha, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and all these different ones that you have. Uh, so Paul is, is giving this credibility to Luke's writings as being Scripture. 2nd Peter 3, 15-16, uh, Peter is speaking of Paul, and I want to read this because I like the way it says it. I should have turned to it. Where's Peter? It used to be in the New Testament somewhere. <laughs> Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 15. And the account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. The wisdom given unto him, what? All scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? As also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to be understood, which they are, uh, that are learned and unstable rest, that they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Peter is saying that Paul is writing, basically he's saying he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that was given unto him. He lists his, mentions his epistles, and then he says, and all the other scriptures. Peter is giving credibility to Paul's writings as being scripture. This is why these things hold up under the scrutiny of being in the canon of scripture. James and 2 Peter uh, were rejected Initially, and, and rejected is not really the right word. They were questioned initially. People wondered about them initially, basically because of geographical reasons. Uh, Peter wrote to the Western churches, and James wrote to the Eastern churches. And so what happened was when the letters of, uh, of Peter uh, ended up in the Eastern churches, they were like, we've never seen this before. So it wasn't they necessarily rejected it, they questioned it. And so the critics try to claim, oh, there was all kind of contention about bringing Second Peter. No, there wasn't. It was just the fact they'd never seen it before. The Eastern, the Western churches had never seen James's writing before. Once they looked at them and actually studied them, they quickly accepted them as being scripture, and they ended up in the canon. Uh, the list on in Pentecost on the day of Pentecost kind of gives that idea where he talks about Bithynia and uh, the churches in, in Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and then he moves all the way across to the other side. There was a very wide expanse and it's not like now where somebody says something you can get on the internet. You know, I, I listen to a pastor every about every week uh, so I wait until Sunday afternoon and then sometime during my shift on Sunday evening I listen to a sermon. I mean, you can't do that back then. You know, they... <laughs> It took a while for letters to get around. So there was initial resistance to James's books and Peter, uh, Second Peter, because the other side hadn't seen it yet. 
But by the second century, all churches agreed. There was absolute unanimity on the fact of this, the Scripture that we have now, the 27 books of the New Testament, only five years after John's death. Jude, a lot of them argued Jude, because Jude was not written by an apostle. And so there was a question about Jude. Uh, and here's why. Because in Jude, verse 14, he quotes from the book of Enoch, which is an apocryphal book. And they said, whoa, wait a minute, how can that be Scripture when he's quoting from an apocryphal book, which the church, ne- the, the, the actual church never accepted as being a scriptural book? And he says in verse 14, Enoch also, the seventh of Adam, prophesied of these things. And so they initially resisted, they initially questioned, should Jude be in the canon? But, uh, and also there was a, a, a tradition of, a tradition among the Gnostics of Michael wrestling with Satan over the body of Moses. But then it was pointed out to them that many times in Scripture, the Scripture quotes from non-biblical sources. It happens many times. Paul quotes from Epidemides of Crete in Titus 1.12. He says, One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Then he said, this witness is true. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) You Cretans are all liars, every one of you. (laughs) But Paul is quoting from a non-biblical source. He's quoting from uh, their prophet or their um, poets of their day. He quotes from Artemis in Acts 17, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Jesus, when he was meeting with Saul on his way to Damascus, Jesus cried out to him and said, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. That is a line from a classical Greek poem. So Jesus, in a sense, was quoting from a classical Greek poem. Now you have to think, was Jesus really quoting from a classical Greek poem, or was he just using a uh, a line or a a figure of speech that was very common during that day, something that Saul would understand, which is most likely what happened. Um, Revelation was widely dispersed for a couple of reasons. <laughs> Mostly because nobody had ever seen it. It wasn't widely dispersed, it wasn't widely accepted, so they were a little resistant because they'd never seen it before. And then they read it and it scared them to death and they were resistant again. They, they, they weren't sure about this book of Revelation. But that resistance was quickly melted down and they accepted it. Hebrews was the hardest. Now Hebrews was the one that they weren't sure whether it should go in the canon or not. Number one, they had no idea who wrote it. <laughs> There's a huge argument to this day about who wrote Hebrews. I'm one of them that thinks it was Paul. Most people don't think it was Paul. I don't know. Who wrote Hebrews? But uh, that was their resistance because in order to be in the canon, it had to be written by an apostle or it had to be written by somebody in direct influence of an apostle in their sphere of influence. So Hebrews, there was a little bit of worry, a little bit of uh, question about that. But as they studied Hebrews out, it fit the rest of the criteria that that fit, and I'll get into that here in just a minute. But when you look at the uh, the fact, by early 200s, by the early 200s, all extra biblical writings had been completely rejected from the early church canon. 
They threw them out. They said they don't fit. They don't work. They're not part of going to be part of the canon. It was that long ago. There was never a huge contention like so often. Um, try the bill of goods. Were, they try to sell us. It was never this big contention about what books were going to be in the Bible. In 397 A.D., the church council called the Senate of Carthage uh, basically was dealing with the fact that Gnosticism was coming into the church. They were trying to get the church to accept Gnosticistic writings. And so the, the, the council at, in 397 A.D. made an official proclamation, these 27 books are the New Testament. It wasn't that that was the first time they were recognized as the New Testament. That was when they made it official. Basically, they were making a stand against Gnosticism coming into the church. And so, a lot of times they'll say, oh, they didn't even decide on the canon for 400 years. That's not true. It was decided within the first 200 years. It was just made official after 400 years. The Jesus Seminar is going around the country nowadays, and they have been for about 20 or 25 years or so. And what they do, they're a group of scholars and, and theologians, and they get together in a room, and they sit at a table, and they have a bowl with marbles. <laughs> they have black marbles and gray marbles and white marbles and pink marbles and red marbles. And they read a passage just randomly out of the New Testament, uh, that was written by that was a, a quote of Jesus, and these guys vote on whether those that that particular saying was something that Jesus actually said or not. And so each one puts their marble out. If they don't think that he said it, they put a black marble out. If they think, oh, he might have said it, they put a gray marble. If they put a white marble, that means they don't know whether he said it or not. Uh, a pink marble said he probably said it, and a red marble said Jesus definitely says it. That said that. That's their idea of scholarship, scriptural scholarship. And they're becoming very powerful, very strong within evangelical the evangelical movement. They just randomly decide they don't like what he said. And ironically, most of the time what they reject is the things they just don't like. Isn't that funny how that works? Hmm. People within the church nowadays like to do that. You know, they run into something they don't like. Yeah, that's not what they really meant. I find that people do that way too easily. Oh, yeah, Paul said that, but I don't think that's what it really means. But we better be careful doing that kind of thing. So the Jesus Seminar has become very popular, very uh, very strong along that line, and that's exactly how they do their scholarship. No basis whatsoever. They just decide, I don't think Jesus said that particular thing. And you see that influence taking place in the rise of the homosexual movement? How often have we heard them say, Jesus never said a thing about homosexuality? Let me tell you something. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means when Leviticus condemns it, Jesus said it. When Paul's writings condemned it, Jesus said it. You don't separate Jesus from part of his word. He is the word. The Word was made flesh and lived and dwelt among us. Jesus is that Word. So we can't separate that. So the Gnostic books became, uh, you know, kind of back into the limelight a few years back when they had a big archaeological dig in Egypt where they found a whole bunch of these Gnostic books that they dated back to about 500 AD. And they, of course, were full of heresy. 
And a lot of the liberal scholars looked at him and said, oh, wow, this totally changes the view of the church on how we understand scripture and how we understand. And it became a big thing. And I think National Geographic did a TV show on it and all that. The term Christianity upside down because of these Gnostic books. These Gnostic books were found in Egypt and they were written in Coptic. 500 years after the fact, they were written. Now, I want to ask you, if you were to go to Japan and do a dig and they found a book or a bunch of books that said that George Washington was never the president of the United States and he was born in Alaska, would it carry any weight to you? First of all, Alaska wasn't a state when George Washington was around. Second of all, there's vast myriad of evidence that said he was president of the United States. And it, the book wasn't even written in English. It was written in some other language and found in Japan. I mean, nobody would give it any credibility. But that's what they're doing with the Gnostic books. They're written in a different language at a different time, found in a different place. And then they want to supersede Scripture with these things. And so that's why it doesn't even make sense to, to give it any value. I'll try to wrap up with this. These are the things that are required for these books that were required that the church held as the standard for bringing books into the, uh, the canon. Number one, written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. Somebody that was in close association with an apostle that were taught directly at the feet of an apostle. Second of all, they had to be truthful. The book had to have God's truth in it. Now, see, God, when you're looking at this this group, the early church, as they were deciding what went into Scripture and what didn't, people think it's just like random guys getting together and saying, yeah, I think this goes in and that doesn't. But does God arrange decision processes within the church? I believe that. You have Judas who betrayed Christ. He died. They had an empty space. And what did the Bible say? They cast lots and Matthias was chosen. Do you think they just rolled dice? Hey, oh, six. That's you, Matthias. God ordered that decision. Just like He ordered the decision with what books went in. And those books had to be found to be truthful. They scoured those. Now when you look at the Gnostic books, you look at the, the Gospel of Enoch, or the, the one that's really funny is the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. They later found out it was written like uh, 250 A.D. by a man. Uh, you look at you know, the, the book of Enoch, you look at all these, you read them, it's completely different than reading scripture. Anybody ever been in the military? Most of the time you can tell an officer without ever knowing, even if he wasn't wearing a uniform. You know why? Because he carries a command presence. When he walked, you know I'm a Star Trek fan, I admit it, I'm sorry. When Captain Kirk walked on the bridge of the Enterprise, did anybody wonder if he was the captain? I mean, he just, William Shatner was the man. He walked on there and he was the man. Nobody looked and said, oh, I think Dr. McCoy is the captain. No. He didn't. That's what Scripture does. When you read Scripture next to a Gnostic book or, or an apocryphal book, it, those books lack the power. They lack the authority that is carried in the Word of God in that Scripture. You don't have to wonder. I wonder if that's part of the Bible or not. Even if you never saw it before, you would know because of the, the power that is in the Word of God. It's a, a totally different thing. 
They had to be faithful to prior canonical writings. And this is where Hebrews won out. What does Hebrews do? Hebrews explains in great detail and depth the Old Testament and the Old Testament law and practices. You can't get into the book of Hebrews and find anything that contradicts Old Testament canonical writings. That's why they accepted it. They understood. They're not sure who wrote it, but it carried the power and influence and authority of an apostle. So they accepted that. Uh, it had to be confirmed by Christ or His apostles. And again, in Scripture, in various places, they confirm one another. Scripture is confirmed over and over by itself. And then the other thing, it had to have been used and recognized by the first century church. No first century church ever preached from the Apocrypha. No first century church ever preached from a, 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 a Gnostic book or any other book. They preached from these words, the book, the Word of God. That is how the canon of Scripture came about. Now we have so many people trying to attack the canon. And we have to understand, you deal with uh, Mormons. Mormons are lovely people. I love them to death. <laughs> Deb and I were just talking about a real sweet couple. We're like, God, oh, they're so sweet. I wish they weren't Mormon. <laughs> I wish they'd get saved. They're wonderful folks. But they're following a word that came around over 18 centuries after Christ, contradicts the Word of God, carries no biblical authority, and has like six prophecies and most of which can't ever come to pass. It doesn't carry the authority of the Word of God. It hasn't been proven as the truth of God's Word. The Book of Mormon is a fraud. What does Scripture tell us? Well, what is it? Uh, Jude? Look here, I think it's Jude around 15 or so. Verse uh, 3. Ah, verse 3, not 15. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. There's no other books that came around later. There's no other writings that came around later. There's no addition to the faith. There's nothing more to the faith that came around later. So, when God gave us the Word, He gave us the complete Word. There's nothing to be added to it. I know everybody's about to fall asleep, so I'm going to close. But I just wanted to bring you this, because people deal with this. It's just like they'll tell you, well, the Bible is translated from translations upon translations upon translations and lost all kinds of stuff. That's a fallacy. And hopefully we dealt with that before, and I'll probably deal with it some more. When somebody says, all oh, the canon of Scripture, this should have been included, and that shouldn't have been in there, that's a fallacy. God ordered these books, and He did it in a very clear, concise way under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And we have the right books in the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and the power of Your Word. Lord, it builds our faith. Every time we get into Your Word... It builds faith. And that word is power and light to us. It is truly a light unto our feet. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger for it and give us a desire to get into your word and seek the truth of that word, Lord, as we dig in there and we see what you're trying to tell us. And as the world, as critics, as skeptics will try to say, 
that this is wrong, that's erroneous, or that's an error, God. Help us to have enough knowledge and faith to understand that, God, you've given us the right words. They're the right words. They're the right books. And they say the right things. And there's no contradiction. There's no error. Lord, your word is true and it is complete. Help us to apply it to our lives. Father, I thank you for giving us your holy word. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen.